Hello, and welcome to Quinn Cummings Gives Bad Advice. What is this podcast about? It is about me, Quinn Cummings, giving bad advice. Why do you give bad advice, Quinn? Well, I don't mean to, but I'm not actually qualified to tell you how to do anything. I'm not a contractor. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an editor at a fashion magazine. Will this be good advice? I believe the answer is in the title. So let's get started. My first question is from somebody who is somewhere on the internet. Dear Quinn, I'm a freelance graphic designer in my 40s. I'm in pretty good shape, but I have three kids under seven, and when I have to go in for a meeting with a prospective client, all I have to wear are the yoga pants I live in, or the stuff I used to wear when I worked full-time, which doesn't fit and is out of date anyway. Any ideas? Yes. You need to come up with a uniform. Not like a cult. Like just two or three things that you do not have to think about. Here are some suggestions. Do a dark pant or a dark skirt. I would say dark pant because what you want to do is make this as brainless as possible. You put it on, you forget it, you feel good, you move on. So whatever cut of pants you like that makes you feel good, find a pair in a dark color. On the top, uh, maybe a V-neck shirt, not too deep a V, a lightweight sweater, because even if you're in a hot climate, if you're indoors in a hot climate, they have it air-conditioned to where you can keep dairy products. So a lightweight sweater is a good idea. Also a dark color. Why? Just because it's forgettable. You may have more than one meeting with this person. You're not going to create a whole wardrobe. You're going to create a uniform. So get a couple of dark sweaters for the top, like a lighter weight sweater. And here's the thing. Where do you want them to look? You want them to look at your hands when you're talking about your work? You want them to look at your face. So, I want you to find some kind of earring. Something kind of quirky and fun. Not huge, not a statement earring. I don't want to see a holiday on your ears. I just want something that says, I am artistic, I'm fun, look up here. And then I want you to find the clothing where you put it on and you think, I feel good. And now, here's the big trick. You can't wear it for anything else but meetings. The minute it goes into rotation in your wardrobe, it's going to start getting stains on it, and then it's no good to you. This stays in its own area. And you pull it out for meetings, and you feel good, and you get work. Here's another question. Dear Quinn, is there a difference between a drama queen and an emotional vampire? And a follow-up, how do you keep both types at a distance without being a total jerk? They are cousins. To use taxonomic terms, under the order of people to avoid, there is the genus narcissists. And under that, there are the species emotional vampire, which is the kind of person who draws their energy from the people around them, whether the people around them have agreed to this or not, and the species drama queen, which not only draws its energy from a captive audience, but also demands all the light and heat in a given social sphere. It is possible an emotional vampire and a drama queen could breed, but would probably produce a sterile and fatiguing offspring. Now... 
how to manage them. While similar, they require two different tactics. First of all, stop worrying about whether you look like a jerk. Emotionally manipulative people are banking on you worrying about that. When your sister-in-law tells you an hour-long story at Thanksgiving about how her mother-in-law was mean to her at last Thanksgiving, does she ask you if you want to buy into this? I'm guessing not. The thing with drama queens is they want your brain, your eyeballs, and your heart. But they're not actually listening to what you say. They're using it as starter fuel for the next soliloquy. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to come up with a phrase, something like, that must be terrible. You must be so sad. Or something like that. Give yourself two sentences. And now, and here's the important part, say nothing else. If you get bored, you may mix it up a bit. You must be so sad. That's terrible. That's terrible. So sad. But nothing new may be added. You will appear to be engaging with the drama queen when, in fact, you have trapped them in a bell jar made of a platitude. Quickly, she will run out of steam and she will have no idea why. Do this often enough and she will stop coming to you because her brain tells her you don't give her the good stuff. But what if she notices I'm just repeating myself? I have used this skill since I was a child. I have yet to be called on it. Narcissists are a frightening adversary until you realize they are a very simple machine. No one else really registers for them, so your defense can be fairly straightforward. Now, emotional vampires. Smile pleasantly, cut them off, and say... I'm sorry, I have to take this. And you leave the conversation. Take what? Who can say? Again, do not worry about looking like a jerk. You aren't telling them their mother was a truck stop floozy. You are choosing not to be a blood bag to an emotional narcissist. And that's enough. For our next question. Dear Quinn, I'm a recovering alcoholic, and I think food has replaced alcohol for me as an addiction. I've gained 40 pounds in six months. How do I find a constructive way to kick my addictions? Addiction is a cunning, cunning little disease. I've always felt incredible empathy for people who have addictive food issues, because as hard as it is to be a recovering alcoholic, it's a fairly simple equation. You get a chip. I have not had a drink in five years. Well, if you don't have food in five years, there's not going to be many chips to be gained. You have to develop a non-addictive relationship with food. Couple of thoughts. I think you have to get an Overeaters Anonymous meeting and see what that feels like. There may be some tips there for you. Um, you say you're, you use the phrase you're a recovering alcoholic. That would indicate to me you have a sponsor. I would talk to my sponsor if I were you. If you don't have a sponsor, get a sponsor. You need a category expert in recovery. And one of those people, the perfect one for you is sitting in one of those rooms. But if you don't ask for help, you don't get it. But before you get there, I want to give yourself a pat on the back. I want you to give yourself some credit. You noticed 
a pattern of behavior of addiction and you're stopping it probably a lot faster than you did with alcohol. So even if it feels not great right now, you got to know you're turning it around faster and you're getting better. And that's all we can ask of ourselves ever. This one comes from the internet and it comes from a teenager. Dear Quinn, how do I build confidence? The good news is confidence is easy to build. The bad news is building it is intermittently agonizing. Let me predict your current inner monologue. It goes something like this. People tell me I'm funny. I love making people laugh. I will, however, never try stand-up because I will tell a joke and no one will laugh and someone will cough and then I will be forced to feign my own death and start over in Guatemala. Humans have no hard exoskeletons. We have no fangs. I recently broke a nail opening a letter, so I'm thinking my claws are like nothing in a fight. What kept our ancestors alive on the African plains was living in a small community of other humans. When we think we look stupid in front of others, some little ancestor in our head whispers, they're going to kick you out of the group and then you will be eaten by hyenas. There was no evolutionary benefit to looking stupid back then. I don't know if you've noticed, but we're not running around naked on the African plains anymore. You might be. I don't know your life. I want you to think about something that sounds kind of fun or, or interesting to do. Like, I want to learn Italian so I can then go to Italy and speak Italian at people or, or paint or finally talk to that girl at that place. Your brain, I'm guessing, immediately informs you you will look stupid if you try. I want you to answer, and? Your brain will probably come back with something like, and then people will know you tried and failed. Here's the tricky part. You say again, and? Each time it comes back with some new version of social hellfire you're going to rain down upon yourself by trying to surf, just say, and? Eventually, the comebacks will stop, well, coming back. The ancestor expects you to fold quickly, and the ancestor has no other tools. Now that the ancestor is quiet, I want you to try an experiment in the next day or so. At some point, Maybe while you're driving or showering or running naked on the African plains. Again, I don't know your life. I want you to stop daydreaming, which is all any of us are ever really doing, and play back whatever movie has run in your head for the previous five minutes. It was all about you. This is not an insult. We're all caught up in the me show. Even if we're thinking about someone else, we're just trying to figure out how they fit into the me show. This is incredibly good news for you. If you make a mistake in front of people, you know what they're thinking about you? Virtually nothing. Run your experiment knowing that nobody actually cares about the outcome but you. Finally, shift the game. Find something that completely erodes your confidence and find a new way of approaching it. Let me give you an example. When you're a freelance writer, as I am, you have to call magazine editors that you do not know and pitch them story ideas. 
If that sounds fun, let me rephrase that. You have to call busy strangers and try to convince them to give you money. It's agonizing. I think it would deflate like Matthew McConaughey. A writer I know who was tired of procrastinating and tired of not getting paid, which is what happens when you don't pitch yourself for jobs, gave herself an assignment. She could quit calling editors for the day once 15 editors turned her down. So instead of each no making her feel small and stupid, each no put her that much closer to freedom. Because she wasn't afraid of the no, she was less tentative on each call. Because she was less tentative on the call, you probably already guessed this, but she got writing assignments. Remember the ancestor whispering about your imminent social exile? Embrace it. Figure out a way to feel as if you won either way. Because that's ultimately what confidence is. The feeling that nothing external can shake who you know you really are. Which is, of course, a person running naked on the African plains. Dear Quinn, a friend of mine from childhood is angry about something I said. I would apologize, except that even she admits I wasn't talking about her, and I don't officially know she's angry at me yet. She told a mutual friend that she's cutting off contact with me because of this. I feel terrible, but am I wrong to also be annoyed? If this helps, she has cut me out of her life once before back when we were in our 20s. We had made plans to see a movie, and not only did she not meet me at the theater, I didn't hear from her for 10 years. By the time we reconnected, it seemed weird to bring it up, so I never knew what that one was about. I guess my question is, am I right to be a little mad? Friendship without trust is nothing. She doesn't trust you to even tell you that you hurt her feelings, and you can't trust her not to ghost you, as she has now done twice. You're not friends. It only feels that way because you've known each other since childhood. This is more like an armed truce than a friendship. So yeah, you have reason to be annoyed. But I suspect you are more annoyed with yourself. Lucy held out the football, and damn it, you ran at it again, Charlie Brown. You thought she was different now. She's not. Send her a card apologizing for any harm your words may have caused her if you feel like it. Because you might be a completely tactless person, and taking responsibility is never a bad idea. But after that, I think you're done. You aren't going to change unless you're given information, and she's not giving you information. So, yeah, you have every right to be annoyed. Dear Quinn, my partner of nearly 10 years was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and his care team wants him on a medication to potentially reduce his, very early, stage tumor. Sexual side effects will occur. I'm trying to convince him to take it without being the nag from hell, but like the anti-vaxxers, logic isn't helping. Any suggestions? I am completely unqualified to answer this. Having said that, here is some bad advice. Prostate cancer is one of those diseases that I know was probably overtreated for a generation, and many men were left incontinent or impotent 
and there isn't necessarily any evidence that it saved their lives. So now men are understandably cautious. They're terrified. You say you want to logic with him. Right now he's afraid. And I know this much about science. When you're afraid, your frontal lobe shuts down. You're not doing a lot of higher reasoning if you hear my junk has cancer. So I think maybe you need to find a mediating voice that can help him hear what this actually means. Maybe he can go on watchful waiting. I know some men who are getting their blood work done every nine months or so, and the, you know, as long as the numbers aren't going up, they're allowed to not do anything. But I think you need to find groups maybe who help men with prostate cancer or find uh, maybe a couples therapist for a couple of times just to talk about what this actually means. Because right now, he's not hearing you talk. He's just frightened and he deserves to be not frightened and you deserve to have a guy who's listening to the people around him. So get to work. Dear Quinn, my best friend's boyfriend hit her during a fight the other day. I confronted him about it and they both swear it was a one-time thing. He seems to really regret it, even saying they can take a break if she wants. She's insisting that she provoked it. I want to believe him, but I just want my friend safe and happy, and I don't think he's going to give her that. This is the first question where I wanted to start shouting halfway through the question. I, I, uh, we're going to take it piece by piece now. I confronted him about it, and they both swear it was a one-time thing. No, all that means is that this is the first time it has happened. He has now crossed a boundary. If you have ever done a thing that is taboo, you will figure out the first time you do it is the hardest time. After that, you've kind of built a path, okay? He seems to really regret it, even saying they can take a break if she wants. How gracious of him. She's insisting that she provoked it. I, I think I'm actually now having a nosebleed. It is 2019. I brought it on myself. Is still anyone? Okay. I want to believe him, but I just want my friend safe and happy, and I don't think he's going to give her that. I don't think he's going to give her that either, but I also don't think there's anything you can do besides be there for her. Because right now, they both have severely flawed pieces of information they are acting on. Do I believe he is going to hit her again? I have no idea, but I tell you this, if they ever have a fight, they are both going to know that that is an option. Is she going to modify her behavior because of it? Is he going to push to get something he wants because they both know he hit her once? This is, you do this once and you're out, not because the person isn't sorry. They can be sorry, but it means that it's now on the table. And unless it was, I hit her, and then I went to an island which consisted only of therapists, and I didn't come back for five years, they are not ready to continue this relationship. But this isn't your relationship. So here are your jobs as the friend. You said your piece. 
you can't say anymore because she will defend him and she will push you away and she may need you at some point. So now you have to bite your tongue. If he starts to prevent her from seeing you, which abusers do, you have to work harder to see her. But again, you have to be there. You have to be neutral. You have to be supportive. You have to love her. But she's got to come to this one on her own. We tell people how they can treat us. What your friend just told her boyfriend is, he can do that and there will be no consequences. He may not believe he's going to do it again, but on some level he knows he can get away with it. If she is under 18, which she could be, if they are both under 18, no, more specifically, if she is under 18, tell her parents. It may ruin your friendship. It may also save her life. Well, the clock inside my head tells me that's about enough bad advice for right now. Thanks today to Bobby Osinski, Phil Warren Prime Reproductions, and Keith Greenstein, who did my logo. I love my logo. It might be my first tattoo. And remember, I can't give you bad advice unless you send me a good question. You can reach me on Twitter at QuinnCy, Q-U-I-N-N-C-Y. Or you can send a question to qcbad.com. That's the letter Q, the letter C, B-A-D, dot com. Send me your questions, and I'll give you some bad advice. Okay, that's it. See you next time.